Welcome to the 66th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helberg, and my co-host Vicky can't be with us today, but it's an honor and pleasure to welcome back my longtime friend, Dr. Nancy Knowlton. Nancy, who graduated Harvard and taught at Yale, is the former SAN Chair of Marine Science at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, where, among other things, she was the founder and leader of the Earth Optimism Movement, and we'll get into that. She's the author of Citizens of the Sea, based on the decade-long census of marine life that she also helped lead. She founded the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography with her husband and former podcast guest, Dr. Jeremy Jackson. And I could go on about your resume, but let's just start with basics, Nancy. When did you first connect with the ocean? Oh, I first connected with the ocean when I was pretty small because both my uh, grandmother on one side of the family and my grandparents on the other they actually had houses on either side of long island sound so i spent a lot of my summer sort of wandering around the pebbly beaches of long island sound turning over boulders and swimming and uh, fishing for crabs with a little bit of broken open muscle so I, they, it goes way back so you grew up on the beaches of long island sound and and the cobble stone beaches of parts of it and um when you were growing up, what, what was your orientation when you went, you know, got out of high school, went to college? What were you thinking in terms of life direction? I knew by then I wanted to be a biologist. Actually, I started off wanting to be an astronomer and I had a telescope when I was little and, and uh, I found a discovered, discovered, I did, you know, other people obviously knew about it, but I discovered for myself a comet in the sky and watched it get the tail grow. And, and I loved looking at the rings of Saturn and that sort of thing. But I think um, eventually I came to realize that I didn't really have the skill set to be an astronomer. And then I had a wonderful high school teacher in, uh, uh, in biology. So that's when I really wanted to be a biologist. But I spent most of my, at first I wanted to be a microbiologist. And then I transferred from Smith to Harvard. And I took a class from uh, uh, E.O. Wilson and also classes from Steve Gould. So a very distinguished educational pedigree. And that's how I started to get really interested in, in whole organisms rather than little tiny things. And, um, but it wasn't until I worked for a year after I graduated for a woman named uh, Dr. Ruth Turner. She was the first woman to go down in Alvin, deep sea. And she, I worked as her research assistant for a year and, and I just kind of absorbed marine biology from her. And that's where I set, finally, you know, having spent a lot of my childhood in the, uh, next to the ocean, in the ocean, I finally started to connect it to what I could do for a, for a living. So, and, and how did you go about it once, once you determined that you wanted biology and, and your teacher had, as you said, been the first woman to go down on, on Alvin, the deep ocean submersible, what were your first steps into the wet, salty 71% of our planet? Well, when I was working for uh, Ruth Turner, I, uh, I actually, she encouraged me to learn how to scuba dive. So I learned to dive in the, in the waters of Massachusetts, which aren't really the necessarily the easiest place. It's not really the easiest place to learn to dive. It was really cold and you couldn't see much farther than your hand at the end of your arm. But I did learn to dive. And then, um, and then I went to grad school at the University of California at Berkeley, where there was a big diving program, marine, marine, a lot of people doing marine science. And uh, still, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted. I knew I wanted to do something in the ocean. Um, and that was back in the heyday of animal behavior. So I was sort of interested in, for a while, I was interested in octopus behavior, which is a pretty cool topic. But then I 
pretty quickly figured out that octopus were kind of hard to work with, <laughs> hard to catch, hard to keep. And so for, for one reason or another, I was, um, sort they of were skateboarders. Yes. Yeah. They definitely escape artists. Uh, so when I was trying to catch octopus in the mean, uh, while I was doing that, there were all these snapping shrimp and that's how I wound up working on snapping shrimp and they're tropical. So I wound up taking a class in discovery Bay, Jamaica, and that's how I got introduced to coral reefs. So it was kind of one thing, you know, it, it really, when you think of it back from when I was six to when I was in grad schools, it was a lot of little decision points, but none of them were very organized. It's not like I had a clear goal and I was heading toward it the whole time. It was more a series of stepping stones, never really knowing where the next stepping stone was going to be. But And yet uh, uh, the clearest sign yet of your intelligence is you moved from diving in Massachusetts to scuba diving in California to Jamaica. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's um, back in the days when I was diving in Jamaica, of course, the reefs were spectacular. They weren't perfectly pristine. We knew that, well, for example, there were no big fish at all on the reefs, even in the 1970s. And that's from, that's due to the fact that, you know, Jamaica is a poor country and just a little bit of subsistence fishing can really take out most of the fish, especially when you've got a, a pretty narrow band of shallow water, which is what is the case for the north coast of Jamaica. So uh, it, all, it doesn't go out very far and just a handful of fishermen can really fish out most everything. So even back then, there were no big fish, they're just little tiny fish. But the corals were beautiful and we didn't make a connection between the health of the fish or the lack of the health of the fish and the health of the corals. And then various things happened and the reefs themselves collapsed over a course of just a couple of years. But I saw them before, uh, as I say, I didn't see them before people, but I did see them while the corals themselves were spectacular. Those places are actually hard to find now. And and you did a lot of the original science kind of looking at how coral reefs thrive or, or the, you know, fail to thrive. Well, um, I certainly did some. I mean, there are a lot of people working on that problem. One, one Because I saw what happened in Jamaica was there was a big hurricane that came by and just bashed everything to pieces. And so we actually tagged a lot of survivors and then all the survivors died as well. And then we tagged more survivors, you know, was still left and those also mostly died. And it turned out to be a combination of uh, predators, which we could see right then there, you know, all these things that love to eat the coral, there wasn't that much coral left. So they were sort of glomming onto the few pieces that were left. And so they were really uh, doing a number on the survivors. And then what we didn't realize at the time was there's a disease sweeping through the Caribbean. So a lot of things were dying for reasons we couldn't really quite figure out. So, so who, by, who were the coral predators? Coral predators? Oh, um, there's a little snail called Coraliophylla. And there is um, a fireworm, uh, which actually s swallows the tips of branching. What we were studying at the time, we were mostly studying the branching corals, the the staghorn coral, and they swallow the, the staghorn coral sort of like sword swallowers. They open their mouths and kind of crawl down, uh, crawl down the, um, you know, with the, the branch tip, and then they, they just crawl down uh, with their mouths open and they digest, and they sit there for a while and digest away the living tissue on the outside of the coral. And then, um, and then damselfish don't really so much eat the coral, but they kill the coral because they like to grow seaweed gardens, and so they'll peck at the coral and kill it. So those three things together uh, did a real number on the small number of survivors from Hurricane Ellen. And then, and then the diseases came, which also was happening in the well, forest. Yeah, and the diseases actually were going on even then, but you know, we didn't 
we, there were things that were dying for reasons we didn't know, but at the time we didn't realize that this big epidemic was sweeping through the Caribbean and killing all the branching corals. So they, that actually had a huge impact as well, though we only really figured that after the fact. So it, you know, it really showed us that, you know, we were expecting the reefs to bounce back. This uh, saccharum coral in particular grows really fast and it's pre-adapted to sort of grow back from little pieces. And so even though the, hurricane kind of smashed it up a lot. Uh, we were, the reason we tagged the survivors is we thought they were going to grow back. And, and then what we learned was they didn't, they never really, they really have never really recovered in it uh, to the way they were back in the 1970s. So while studying in the Caribbean, you also hooked up with or actually married Dr. Jeremy Jackson. And for a time, as you were studying the decline of, of coral species, you became known as doctors gloom and doom. How does one square like the de global decline of corals with eco-optimism? Yeah, well, corals are not where you'd start for um, ocean optimism, earth optimism, whatever you want to call it. But there are, I mean, I even though I was watching a lot of bad things happen, and certainly to the reefs in Jamaica and the Caribbean generally, I did actually spend some time in places where the reefs were still spectacularly healthy. The Central Pacific in particular is so remote that there no, there's no fishing, there's no pollution, there are no people basically. And uh, those reefs, when I visited them, uh, this was before global mass bleaching, were also still spectacular. So there are still places where you could see what things would look like if you reduce the human impacts on, on the reefs. But, but really, I think the motivation was not so much the, the the examples on reefs, which, as I say, were that's not where you'd start when you're trying to be optimistic about the ocean. To just teaching students, when I got to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, we actually started this program called the we started something called the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation, and we had a, a whole master's and PhD program associated with it. And we part of that program was to bring in not only biologists but also economists, anthropologists. It was a very cool mix of natural science and social science, because we felt that you couldn't solve ocean problems without having them both together, which is true. And so we would start because it was such a, you know, these people really didn't have that much common in terms of their training or what they knew about. So we'd start with a, a course in the summer it was kind of boot camp for biodiversity and conservation of the ocean. And it was, you know, Jeremy and I would give these lectures about the state, we'd start with the state of the ocean, it seemed kind of a logical way of starting, you know, like, things are really bad, and they seem to be getting worse, what are we going to do about it. But the reality was that when you start off with all that bad news, it's really hard to then shed it to think about what to do about it. In fact, there have been really interesting uh, social science experiments shown that people who, who, if you start with bad news, it's really hard to move to good news. Whereas if you start with, and if you start with good news and then move to bad news, the bad news sticks. So bad news is much stickier than good news. So I started thinking about these students. I mean, I started thinking about the program as kind of medical school for the ocean. And, and so the students were going to be, you know, would uh, future ocean doctors. But then I realized, wow, we're spending all this time on all this bad stuff. And we're teaching our students to write these basically ocean obituaries. And, um, and yet when you go to medical school, you don't train students to write obituaries of people, even though, of course, we all get obituaries at the end. <laughs> and uh, much sooner than the ocean will get an obituary. And, um, and so I started thinking, well, this is just not the right approach. And, uh, and so that's what led to a series of symposia called Beyond the Obituaries, Success Stories in Ocean Conservation. And the, the reaction to that 
change of, you know, how to talk about problems was so dramatic. I had many students come up to me, say, you know, I almost left the field of, of marine conservation because it was so depressing. And uh, you've really made me realize that there's something I can do and there's, this is a meaningful career. And so it just has just continued from that, from that point on. Now, this is, this is before we get further into that. When you and Jeremy started the program at Scripps, it really was bringing biology back to U.S. oceanography. Uh, the context that I wrote about in Blue Frontier was oceanographers like Roger Revelle and Walter Monk helped the Navy in World War II and helped win the war, really. Walter Monk gave Eisenhower the right date for landings for D-Day. But after the war, the Navy pretty much took over U.S. oceanography. A lot of physical oceanographers came to the fore, and biology was sort of left by the side until the end of the Cold War. They were out there helping the Navy chase Russian submarines, but not noticing the state of corals and kelp. So just talk about biology's role in understanding the ocean. Well, of course, we got there a lot. <laughs> a lot sooner than the end, <laughs> a lot later than the end of the Cold War. Uh, we were there, we got there in 1998. And um, it's not the case that there was no biology at Scripps when we got there. I mean, Paul Dayton and Mia Tegner are both really distinguished marine biologists working at Scripps. And there were quite a few people working on micro microbes, very distinguished program in microbiology at Scripps at Scripps. And then Lisa Levin, uh, working actually everything from salt marshes to deep sea. So there were a lot, there were a lot of biologists there. In fact, there was actually a lot of conservation there. Uh, but it was all, the whole wasn't greater than the sum of its parts, because everybody was off doing their own things. And so there was no synergy. And so when we created the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation, what we did was uh, sort of create a common place where people could uh, get together, talk, jointly train students, and then you know, provide an opportunity to raise money, uh, a really important program from the NSF, which at the time was called IGERD, Interdisciplinary Graduate Education and Research Training. And so we got one of those grants, we had set up a master's degree program, and, and the result was suddenly there was this kind of uh, synergy going on between these different people. So it's not like that the pieces weren't there, it's just the pieces weren't play they weren't they weren't helping each other and so i think that's really what our contribution was was to to make the whole greater than some of those parts and with this focus on uh solutions was which was ultimately what really uh, made it work you did a lot of interesting synergy as i said you you brought together one conference with journalists historians and scientists from the marine sector you did a lot of interesting stuff that hadn't been tried what what was the outcome of all that well, that's really, I mean, that those were I, the, the sessions that you referred to, I think, were part of with a grant from the Sloan Foundation, and they're sort of known, unknown, unknowable program. And so it led to, so that was sort of, I mean, first of all, we created the center uh, deliberately as an interdisciplinary center. And then the thing is, though, when you create a center, you have to have something going on. <laughs> and something going on usually requires some kind of funding source. So really the big, the, we had that series of three symposia, which generated a lot of intellectual energy. And then we got this grant, the grant from the National Science Foundation and also figured out how to train master's degree students as well. And so that brought in funds, allow us to do all sorts of other things. So it was the combination of the, the basic idea was for it to be a, a solutions driven 
interdisciplinary program. And then it became a reality when we, when uh, we started to have these programs that actually had real money attached to them. And, and you built a kind of conservation science that when you were coming up, I know when Sylvia and others applied science was kind of a dirty word that the idea of, of taking your science and applying it to the real world and coming up with conservation solutions um, that was kind of looked down upon when you were say a graduate student wasn't it yeah it was actually oh definitely as a grad student because that's the dark ages that was in the 1970s really in some ways the more arcane and obscure the problem you were working on the better but uh that you know things have it would have been you know, by the time we got to scripts, it was you know, but almost you know the new millennium. By then, you could see a, a lot of uh, warning signs about things not being right with the planet in general and the ocean in particular. But it was still the case that there was kind of a suspicion about doing something that was too applied in the in the in the biological sciences. It's funny; I don't think it is as true for the physical sciences in some ways. But um, you know, so when Jeremy wrote his big paper on overfishing, he got a certain amount of pushback, even from colleagues at Scripps saying, oh, we don't do that kind of science. You know, that's a little too close to solving a problem. But it, but really, the, the, the currents were beginning to shift very strongly in the direction of, of solutions-based science, even back then, just because you could see I mean, the problems are much larger now, but you could see even back then, uh, over 20 years ago, that the, there were a a lot of problems and that they were clearly not going to go away. Right. And, and the job of science, science is not to have real-time video documentation of an ecosystem's collapse. Well, for a while, that's what we actually did a really good job of. <laughs> that was where the beyond the obituaries idea came from, was that, you know, we were doing such a good job at documenting the collapse and the decline and making predictions about future collapses and future further declines. And we weren't really paying enough attention to what to do about it. I think that's the biggest contribution that, well, the interdisciplinary approach at the time was actually quite revolutionary. I mean, we were, I mean, I won't say we were the very first, no one else had ever thought of doing things that way, but we were one of the, certainly one of the first uh, major programs to, to deliberately bring together the natural sciences and the social sciences. And then, uh, and that just by doing that sort of shifted the emphasis to solutions. And then, as I said, we had had this insight that, you know, we had to move beyond the obituaries. We really had to, to focus on what we can do about the problems rather than the problems themselves. Right. To, to use your analogy, you don't start medical school training by taking them to the morgue to see the dead corals. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's what we did when we started, because we gave these lectures, which was all about death and destruction. And so that's, and as, and I said, and you, and you could sort of get this vibe that this was, you know, even back then that students really wanted more than that. And they, they didn't, that really wasn't why they entered the program, but it took us old folks a little while to figure it out. And then when you went to uh, Smithsonian, you actually sort of expanded the concept to this, uh, you know, ocean optimism or earth optimism? Well, actually, what I took to the Smithsonian when I moved there was the idea of beyond the obituaries. And the in fact, the first beyond the obituary symposium was held at the Smithsonian. So this was an idea that was kind of developing while I was at Scripps, but I hadn't actually was still sort of developing. And then but then we we I knew I was moving to the Smithsonian and I applied for a small grant to run this symposium. It was that it was kind of a pre a pre symposium to the main International Marine Conservation Congress, 
and it was the first one and that that meeting itself was not at the smithsonian but we held this one day symposium at the smithsonian called beyond the obituary success stories in ocean conservation and when i was planning it um actually i got a, a certain amount of pushback in fact i remember one person said you know you can't possibly have a whole day of a meeting on success stories in ocean conservation because there aren't that many successes to talk about and in the end you know we had so many submissions that we basically had to make it speed dating for ocean solutions so no one was allowed to talk for more than six minutes so that was that was super successful and i had people i had one person in particular write me and say you've changed the way i think about my science you've changed the way i teach conservation i'm just not going to do anything the same since being part of this it was revolutionary for me and and not everyone there are a lot of people that felt like that they didn't all write to me of course but um it really did change the 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 sort of tenor of concert marine conservation because that has been a big problem all along there there are a lot of successes out there but so many of them are either published in kind of hard to find places or even when they're published say in major media outlets because of the news cycle they're you know at this you know they're visible for 24 or 48 hours and then they sink below the surface because some other news story has uh, replaced them so it's so made you it give me three just basic examples of um ocean solutions you see working sure so um i mean one of the one solution that clearly works is our marine protected areas and also they're not only marine protected areas, but regulations to stop uh, harvesting certain uh, kinds of marine organisms. Whales are a perfect example. I mean, there's some still some very bad news in the whale department, the North Atlantic right whale, which is, you know, near where I live here in Maine, is in very serious trouble. But whales around the uh, globe are actually, however, recovering, in some cases, back to pre-whaling levels. And, um, and so that's a really a dramatic example. And then I think in terms of cleaning up uh, pollution, there are some some real examples. Tampa Bay is a classic example where the seagrasses uh, were in terrible shape and then the citizens got together and cleaned up the water going into Tampa Bay and eventually, and it wasn't easy, it's not like it happened uh, really quickly, but over the course of a couple decades, uh, the seagrasses rebounded to sort of the levels they were in the 1950s. And then the other thing that I think is um, really- so, so just those are like marine protected areas or like national parks in the sea areas of, of no take. And, and now there's a global movement to create 30% of right. the land and the ocean as marine protected or, or protected areas really. Save the whales worked as a movement. The whales are coming back. And when you uh, reduce pollution, things tend to get rebounded. Yes. And then there's a huge effort now on restoration because I think the people recognize that because so much damage was done, you can't, in some cases it's really important to sort of jumpstart the recovery process. Uh, and so there have been really interesting examples of the restoration of shellfish beds in Long Island or seagrass beds off the coast of Virginia. And there are lots and lots of uh, work being done now here we can turn back to corals there's a huge amount of work being done on coral restoration i think that's still not clear exactly i mean the biggest problem is when you restore something you've got to have gotten rid of the original problem, problem because it'll just go back to the way it was and of course with corals now climate change is the biggest problem so but people are working very in very interesting ways to figure out types of corals that are more resilient to future uh, global changes in ocean conditions so 
it, I wouldn't say corals were the best example for restoration, but they're sort of a fringe, the kind of cutting edge example, but there are lots of other types of organisms which have been restored successfully. So protection, cleaning up, and restoration are, are huge uh, examples. Then of course, there's the whole role the ocean can play in generating renewable energy, which isn't really, that's not really biology, but it's an interesting, it's, it's very interesting that ocean, um, Ocean wind winds are consistent, offshore wind and the, the work being done on ocean wave energy, tidal, exactly. the OTEC, ocean thermal. So, you know, really, when you think about it, there are all these examples. There, none of them are yet big enough uh, and numerous and large enough. And, and we're kind of in a race against time. The reality is, you know, we're trying to save as much as we can and restore as much as we can, but we're also racing against climate change and making us, you know, it's, you know, change really bending the curve, as they used to say about COVID in the, in the emissions department. And that's a real a race against time. But I, and I don't know, it's, it's hard to know how it'll come out. I mean, we're going to lose stuff. There's no question we're going to lose things. But the more we can do to sort of uh, save what we can, increase resilience of what's left, rebuild things. I mean, it won't be be perfect it won't be like it was before but to do nothing would be so so much worse i'm more frustrated and the despairing because we know what the solutions are it's creating the political will to enact them so so what do you see as the intersection now between science and policy you know i think the the main thing is is it's you say it's science and policy it's science policy and economics because what's really interesting i think is particularly in the climate change front is how rapidly it has become the case that renewable energy makes sense, not just for the planet and not just for, you know, reducing air pollution, which is good for us, but just because it's cheaper. And there was a great article, for example, in the New York Times just a couple of days ago about how school districts around the country are actually paying their teachers more with the money they're saving from putting solar panels on their roof it, and, and also doing other sorts of cool things for the community. So when you start getting that kind of dynamic, kicking in, then things, then change can happen really fast. And to, to your point, uh, we really don't know what it's going to be like even 10 years from now, much less. I mean, one of the things that drives me and, and Jeremy and other people crazy is this sort of focus on 2100, because I have to say, we just don't have a clue as to what 2100 is going to be like when change has the potential to happen so quickly. I mean, 2100 is you know a, a long way away and so i think projections about business as usual in 2100 are almost meaningless at this point yeah it's it's um like in talking about our inability to project the future i use the example of the 1990 the first intergovernmental panel on climate change totally underestimated the impacts we'd already be seeing in the summer of 2022 this is a catastrophic summer in terms of impacts. It can surprise us in bad ways and good ways. <laughs> I mean, it can surprise us in good ways in, sense, in the sense that I think no one really anticipated even 10 years ago how quickly renewable energy could potentially take off. And I mean, I think we're just at that point of you know exponential change. Right. We're at the pivot where today solar and wind are, are cheaper energy sources than any of the fossils and also more labor intensive, more job generating. The challenges now are less, as you said, economic than political. That's right. Um, what kind of backlash from either side have you gotten as you've uh, both as a scientist and as a uh, ocean optimist? 
The most backlash I've gotten, I'd have to say, is from other scientists and sort of their analogs in the general public. But I hear more, I guess, from maybe from the scientists. What happens is that for certain people, they're just so wedded to talking about what's not working, the imminent collapse of everything, that they feel that talking about anything that is working that might be a help to confronting the problem and actually resolving it and solving it is distracts the public from thinking hard about the enormity of this, the crisis we're facing. And so I once got an email that was, I was copied on this email, I think deliberately. And the person is very, very famous ecologist who I won't name. <laughs> but, oh, come um, on. You... <laughs> no, 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 I won't name him. Uh, <laughs> but um, he said something like, people who participated in optimism events uh, should be ashamed of themselves. This was in, in connection with, you know, how at the Smithsonian, once we launched ocean optimism, we then wound up pretty quickly in the context of sort of general interest in conservation at the Smithsonian, expanding it to not just oceans, but earth optimism. And so we were organizing this earth optimism summit, which was going to take place in 2017. And I got this email saying, you know, you know, basically saying you should be ashamed of yourself. It was phrased a little bit more indirectly. But. How dare you be hopeful? And so how dare you be hopeful? That's exactly, that's, ex and how dare you think, how dare you convey to anyone that there's any reason whatsoever for hope? And I think that's just so counterproductive. It becomes completely self-fulfilling because if people feel that there's nothing they can do, they will do nothing. I mean, it's very, very, very clear connection between too much bad news and disengagement, apathy, and, you know, just tuning out. And especially with the ocean, as, as you know, it's it's this balancing of the wonder and the warning. I mean, it's yeah. all that we still have to lose, even even as we've lost much already. Oh, yeah. Things could get much, much, much worse than they are right now. Uh, and they will get much, much, much worse if we if we just sort of say it's hopeless and give up. I think the thing that underpins conservation around the world, conservation that works, is trust. And it's that ability to trust somebody else in working together towards a solution that really makes things happen. In the absence of trust, actually, things really tend to fall apart. One more thing I want to, you wrote Citizens of the Sea, which is a great narrative picture book of all the odd and interesting uh, finned folks you meet in the ocean. So you, you got any other writing plans in your future or... Yes, well, I am working on a book. Uh, as you, you're, you do a better job finishing books than I do. I've only written the one, Citizens of the Sea. But I am working on a book on success stories and conservation, sort of the theme of earth, earth optimism, basically. Telling the stories of what's working, why it's working, and how to get more working. Tremendous. Well, Nancy Knowlton, thank you so much for joining me once again on Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast. My pleasure. Ask me anytime. I'm always happy to chat. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.